you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Bokatov, and you say Boka or the light of the morning. In Arabic, it's very similar, Sabahir, and you'd say Sabahanur, the light of the morning. Okay, so I say Sabahir, Sabahanur. Okay, it's, it's beautiful. A lot of similarity between the two languages, but that's about it. Okay, don't ask me for any more. I know a bit more Hebrew, but my Arabic is, is unfortunately dissipated. <clears throat> As Andrew has mentioned earlier on, this year marks the 200th anniversary of a, what I think is a very, very special and important event. It's not just the establishment of an evangelical Anglican society called CMJ, Church's Ministry Among Jewish People, in Jerusalem. It's even broader than that. It actually marks the time when the Jewish Jesus was restored to Jerusalem. And that's a very, very important uh, aspect because for probably 1,800 years, 1,700 years, there was no community of Jewish followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And the state of the church in Jerusalem was, um, uh, let's say, it was turned against Jesus, the Jew. Not many people were willing to accept the fact that Jesus was Jewish. And I'll give you an example. The British consul, William Tanner Young, wrote back to Lord Palmerston in 1839, and he said something like this, quote, he said, the Jew in Jerusalem is treated no better than a dog. If a Jew, my Lord, was to walk past the church of the Holy Sepulchre, it could very well cost him his life. That is not very Christian, considering that Jesus himself was a Jew. End of quote. And so you get a bit of an idea just from that one quotation from the representative of the British government of, first of all, the the status of the Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time under the control of the Turkish Islamic control, authority, but also how the church viewed the Jewish people. And so when CMJ, this organisation, established its presence in 1823, or made its first attempts to establish its presence, it took 10 years of perseverance to finally be established there, um, what they were doing was actually was quite revolutionary. It was introducing the fact that, hey, Jesus is Jewish. And so that was a statement made to the Jewish people who were there, that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, he's the Jewish Messiah of Israel, he's the God incarnate Messiah of Israel. But the statement was also to the Christian churches that were there at the time, that Jesus is is Jewish. And so I'd like to paint a bit of a picture, perhaps not so much this morning, but more so in the afternoon, of what Jerusalem was like in that period of time when this evangelical Anglican society took this prophetic message back to Jerusalem. And if you want any inspiration for today, there is inspiration to be gained from what those pioneers did because the obstacles that faced them were incredible. Yet they persevered. They persevered for several reasons um, because they were Brits and Irish of the time, okay, because a lot of those pioneer missionaries that went out actually came from Ireland or associated with CMJ, but also because they had a strong mandate, a strong vision given by the Lord from the Word of God itself. And they persevered because they stood 
upon the word and they weren't necessarily all that perturbed by the obstacles. Well, they were perturbed by the obstacles. Quite a few of them died not long after they went there. However, they persevered um, despite the obstacles because they had this mandate from God. What I'd uh, particularly like to do this today and this morning in, this, in the messages, and we'll flesh out the history a bit more in the afternoon, but I'd like to look at what was the mandate. What was the mandate that God gave these pioneer evangelical, mostly Anglican missionaries from that period of time? What was the mandate that God gave to them? And it's very interesting to note that that mandate, which was given 200 years ago to this organization called CMJ, actually is still the mandate today, 200 years later. Because CMJ continues to operate in Jerusalem uh, 200 years later, has two major centers, Christchurch inside the old city of Jerusalem, the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East. It has a large complex in the middle of West Jerusalem and uh, right there uh, on Prophet Street, and that's where the international school, the Anglican International School, and a Hebrew-speaking Messianic school are both located. And down in Tel Aviv, Jaffa, there's a large centre down there as well called Bet Emmanuel, and up in the Galilee, sitting above the Sea of Galilee, in a little village called Migdal, or Magdala, from the time of the New Testament, um, there is a guest house up there called Bet Bracha, and so their centres are still operating. Incidentally, three of those centres, which are guest houses, have no foreign guests at the moment, but they're filled with Israeli refugees who've been moved out of the homes down the south. I think there's about 200,000 or 300,000 of these people cannot live there, so now the guest houses are actually full of uh, Israelis who've got nowhere to live for the time being. Um, so that mandate is still the same mandate um, as today, the mandate that was given 200 years ago. And incidentally, the mandate that the Lord gave to CMJ when it was birthed in London in 1809, which Andrew has alluded to, um, that mandate that was given 214 years ago to CMJ was the same mandate, in a sense, that the Lord gave to his disciples 2,000 years ago. Okay, and so there's very, very little difference in the original mandate to the present one, except that 2,000 years later, it's had to adapt to the new circumstances that you find in the world and in Israel itself. But the, the principles of that mandate are still the same. What is the mandate? Well, I'd like to just go through a few scriptures with you, if you don't mind. And we'll start off with um, actually we'll start off with Luke chapter two. This is a very very profound prophecy that was given to Shimeon. <coughs> Simeon. Simeon was like many Jewish people in the first century. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the comforter, the redeemer, because God has always had a plan to redeem humankind and bring them back into relationship with Himself. And people like Simeon was waiting for the Redeemer, the one who would redeem Israel and, of course, even, uh, we know later, the world from that penalty of death that came upon humankind because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. So here was this devout man in Jerusalem waiting and waiting and waiting. So too was Anna, the prophetess. And then on one occasion, a Jewish couple called Yosef and Miriam we know them as Joseph and Mary, brought in their little child. His name was Yeshua. Um, he's, he would have been known in the first century as Yeshua ben Yosef. Okay? Jesus 
the son of Joseph. So they brought this little child in, and these are the words that Simeon said. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, because the word Yeshua is salvation in Hebrew. In actual fact, that's his real name. It was Yeshua. Quite interesting. So Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, all peoples, and then he breaks it down into two. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What a great prophecy. Thereafter, little Jesus, little Yeshua, grew up in Nazareth, in Nazareth, and then later, in the fullness of time, he became an itinerant rabbi, ministering in the Galilee, primarily. But after about three years of ministry with his Jewish disciples, he knew it was time to fulfill his task. Jesus knew his task was to come and to be the atoning sacrifice. He knew that his task was to fulfill God's plan of redemption. He knew that he was coming to die, to take the penalty of death that is upon all of us, because we're all in Adam. He knew that was his destiny. And on the way to Jerusalem, he said this to his followers. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, they're pretty uh, straightforward words. How do you think his disciples received those words? Do you think that's what they were uh, ready to hear? Do you think it's what they wanted to hear? Do you think they actually heard them? They might have heard them there, but certainly not down here. No, that's not what we're expecting to hear from our, our King Messiah, but he said them. Later on the road, Jesus said these words as well. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom for what? He's giving his life as a ransom for us, for humanity, for the Jew first and also for the non-Jew. He was coming to take the penalty of death so that we do not actually have to endure the penalty. He was coming as the perfect one, perfect human being who would be totally obedient. As Adam and Eve were not obedient, he was coming as the perfect one who would be totally obedient, obedient to God's kingdom constitution and therefore could take that penalty of death. Because following the, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, when that penalty of death was imposed, God's plan of redemption was that somebody would come, the seed of the woman, who would be perfectly obedient, uh, and would be able to therefore take that penalty. But no human being could ever be perfect. So if God desired for a restored relationship with humankind, if it was God's desire to have this restored relationship, then he himself would actually have to provide the solution. He himself would actually have to come down and actually be as a human being, God incarnate. And he himself would actually have to take that penalty of death upon himself. Uh, what, other, what other great act of love could there ever be? 
And Jesus was the one. He was the God incarnate Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we come to that time in Jerusalem when the, um, the consummation or the uh, institution of God's purposes for worldwide redemption would actually occur. Jesus would be killed, just as he said. Prior to his death, he met with his Jewish disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. And this was the time of the Passover, the Pesach. And in the Passover meal, there were lots of things they do, including the drinking of four glasses of wine or four times from one cup. And Jesus took the third cup and he said these words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. You know, it's interesting that Christians all over the world for the last 2,000 years, from all denominations, with the exception, I think, of just of only one, will say these words whenever they take communion. Whether you take communion once a week or once a month or once a quarterly, you will always say these words. This is cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, we have to bear in mind that Jesus was a Galilean rabbi in Jerusalem. Uh, that's the center of Jewish life. And he's from the Galilee, he's like a bush boy, okay, uh, down there in Jerusalem. And he's up there saying the most profound words that could come from the mouth of a Galilean rabbi. This is the new covenant. Now, the word covenant is sacrosanct for Jewish people. It's a bit like the word Anzac, okay, if you're talking about Australian or New Zealanders, or the cats if you're in Geelong, okay? You get a word or a concept that is very, very special to a group of people. The word covenant is so special for the Jewish people because their entire identity and destiny is linked to that word covenant or Brit in Hebrew. And Jesus is saying, this cup is the new covenant. And there's only one place where those words are found in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and that is the book of Jeremiah, and we'll go to that soon. Somebody will probably put up the hand and say, sorry, sir, it's also found in the book of Hebrews. Well, the book of Hebrews wasn't written when Jesus said these words. Okay? And Jesus has to have a primary source. If he's going to make an incredibly important statement like this, this cup is the new covenant, then he's going to have to have a good primary source. It's going to have to be found somewhere in the Scriptures, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. But more than that, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, that's even more profound than just saying this cup is the new covenant. You know, to understand this, the significance of these words, we have to put ourselves back into that period of time and amongst the Jewish people to realize just how incredibly important these words are. And oftentimes, when we take uh, communion in the Western world, we just say the words. We don't actually give much um, thought to what it's all about, but we should, because these words and the concepts behind them are extremely important for us to understand who we are in Christ. And this is the mandate that Jesus is giving to us. So let's go and look briefly at Jeremiah chapter 31, which Jesus is obviously alluding to. You see, Jesus being a Jewish rabbi of the first century, when he was teaching, he didn't have to go and give the entire portion of scripture. He would expect his Talmudim, his students, to understand the context. That's how they used to teach in those days. And so when he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, 
He's obviously referring to a much broader bit of scripture. We'll go now to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 37. Now, the book of Hebrews only goes from 31 to 34, but in the original, it's actually it's two parts of a whole. We go 31 through to 37. I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to jump in there every now and again to give a bit of context. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, what have I just said that's not up there? <clears throat> cut. Okay? All English translations will say make, okay? or a word similar to that. But in the Hebrew, it says cut. I will cut a new covenant. Now, it's important for us to realize that in order for a, a covenant, especially a redemptive covenant to be instituted, there has to be the shedding of blood. There has to be a sacrifice. Okay? And that, so that's already there in the original. It says, I am going to cut a new covenant. Who with? Who's this new covenant going to be cut with? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay? And yet when we take communion on Sundays, we just think it's with us. It's with the, the Gentile Christians. What it is. But the original is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And by God's grace, we who are far away have been, we've been grafted in. You know, Paul spoke about being grafted into an olive tree. What's well, already been grafted into this new covenant relationship? And I'll speak more about that in a minute because it's a relationship between Almighty God and humankind. But it's to the Jew first and also to the, to the non-Jew. Why did Paul write that? Because the new covenant is being instituted with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. We cannot never forget that. And folks, let me remind you that when it says the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it actually means the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It doesn't mean anything else. And these are things we have to take on board. We have to look at things in their context, in their original meaning. Jesus is saying these words to a bunch of Jewish people in that upper room in Jerusalem. So this is the new covenant or established with the house of Israel, or cut with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. When Jesus would have said those words, everybody in that room would have understood what a covenant really is all about. Um, in the Western world, the Western church, we don't really understand so well. In actual fact, there are communities around the world, um, even some Aboriginal communities, I've spoken on this subject to them, they understand things just like that because it's still part of their culture, the concept of cutting a covenant. It's important we understand the principles of covenant. In actual fact, it is imperative that we understand the principles of covenant. Now, I personally don't think we can understand what it means to be in covenant union with Jesus unless we understand the basic principles of covenant. So I'll just highlight a few of those principles. It's always between a covenant, it's always... Uh, instituted between two entities. Here it's between God Almighty and the people of Israel. But it could be between two nations. It could be between two individuals, David and Jonathan. It could be between two clans. It could be between two individuals as in a marriage covenant. But generally speaking, it involves the coming together or an agreement between two groups, two entities. And usually it's a... Um, a larger group or a larger entity, let's say a great king, a greater entity, and a lesser entity will want to come into an, an agreement with this greater entity, let's say a great king. And what will often happen is that the, the great king 
uh, would have certain stipulations if another group of people wants to come into a, an agreement with him. And he would say something like this, I govern my kingdom by a certain set of rules, uh, a law, a constitution. If you want to come into a union with me, you have to be willing to accept my kingdom constitution, the way I govern my kingdom. The other thing the great king would say, or the, the larger entity would say, is if you have any other allegiances, you have to break them. If you want to come to a, uh, an alliance with me, you have to break all other alliances. Why? Because you cannot serve two, two masters. Okay? That's another very, very important principle. So when they've agreed upon the terms of having an agreement, they'll come together, and then you get to the more formal part, which is when they kill an animal. They don't just kill an animal, they cut it in two and they split it. So what's on the ground in between? Blood and guts, okay? Now, Andrew, I'm very, very disappointed you don't have a red carpet up and down here. I've just done some presentations in the United States and quite unbelievably, the number of the Anglican churches over there actually had red carpet going down. So it was a great audio-visual help. <laughs> so you've got the two portions are split, okay? And then down the middle... You've got all this other stuff. Representatives of the two groups would then walk up and down between the pieces and they would say words similar to this. May it happen to me as it's happened to this animal if I break this agreement, if I violate this covenant, violate this covenant. Okay, so are you going to do that lightly? Is anybody going to do something like that lightly? Are you going to tread on the blood of the covenant lightly? Because that also actually was regarded in ancient society as a swearing of an oath. It happened to me as has happened to this animal if I break this agreement. Folks, Jesus didn't have to say all those words. People of the time understood the principles, understood the concepts. And there's one good example of this that we often read about. It's in the book of Genesis chapter 15. Almighty God had already called Abram. And he'd given him promises, a promise of a land, a promise of a people, and a promise that all nations on earth would be blessed through him. Abram left his homeland, Ula Chaldeans, and he came into the land of Canaan. And then after a while, he basically said, okay, God, I'm here, and what about those promises? He said, I've got nobody I can hand these promises over to. I've got no descendants. And then God took him outside and showed him the stars of the sky, and he said, count them if you will, so shall your descendants be. And Abram said, Abram said, okay, Tushet, I accept this, dear Lord. You are true to your word. And then in Genesis 15, 7, God says, I am giving you this land. The land of Canaan, I am giving you this land. And Abram, this is the first example of chutzpah, I think in the scriptures, Abraham said, how shall I know that I will inherit this land? God's already proven to him by showing the stars of the sky how true he is to his word. Yet Abram now says, in the context of inheriting the land, he says, well, how shall I know? And so what happened at that point, if it was in Geelong, if this event happened in Geelong, God would have said, come, Abram, we're going down to the lawyer's office and I'm going to sign up a contract, write up a contract, and I'm going to sign the contract. You can go to sleep on the couch if you like, Abram. I'm just going to do all this. I'm going to prove to you how serious I am about this promise I've given to you about the land. Is I'm going to uh, draw up the contract. I'm going to sign it. You know what, Abraham? You can stay asleep. I'm going to countersign it. 
And do you know what, Abraham? You can stay asleep. I'm going to seal it with my own seal. Okay? It cannot be broken. Now, if that event happened today, that's how it would have done. You'd go to a lawyer's office. But in those days, how did they actually seal a deal? They cut a covenant. And that's what you see in Genesis 15. At that point, they cut a covenant. Animals were killed. The, uh, the bodies were portioned, okay, halved, you might say. And then it says a smoking torch and a, uh, and a blazing pot or the other way around then went up and down between the pieces. It was an epiphany of God Almighty himself. Abram was fast asleep. Okay, and then the promise of the land was consolidated with Abram. And that promise then was transferred to Isaac and then to Jacob. You have an example there of a sacrifice being made in order to enact, institute a covenant. There was a sacrifice, the blood was in the middle. God himself went up and down between the pieces. Abram should have, but he didn't. Okay, so it's an unconditional covenant. But you see that principle of the blood of the covenant and the splitting of the sacrifice. So we see it again also in Jeremiah on another occasion. Now, that's basically how things would have happened in antiquity when you're instituting a covenant. At that point, one of the most important aspects of the covenant cutting ceremony took place. The two entities have made this agreement, they've cut the covenant. What happens then? is that the pieces of the animal are taken away and cooked up and they're brought back. And at that point, both parties entering into this agreement would share a common meal. They would eat a meal together to signify that whereas once there were two, now there is one. Because you don't know which part of the animal you're eating came from the left or the right. You're now all eating together. I once lived in a Muslim Arab village for three years before I was married, and then when I was married, and I had to go and pay my landlord the rent every month. And I couldn't just take it up to him and say, here, Mr. Badun, here's the rent. He'd say, Fadal, come in. I had to sit down and go through a whole rigmarole. Whether I was in a hurry or not is irrelevant. I could not rush. And it was a process. And after a while, his wife would bring out a massive big bowl of makhlubi, makhluba. Okay, so it's my, one of my favourite dishes, chicken upside down. And she'd come out with two big spoons and would have to eat together. And then he would say to me, he says, now, Mark Kelvin, now, Mr. Kelvin, are there any problems? And we would discuss any problems in my tenancy between the landlord and the tenant. But we'd have to do it over a meal, eating together from a common bowl, two spoons. And so... There was just an aspect of what used to take place in these ancient ceremonies. Two groups would now come together. They might, once might have been enemies, but they've cut a covenant, so now they are friends, and you're eating together. The two shall become one, in the Hebrew, echad. Okay? So when the two become one, they don't lose their, their identity. Okay? In the marriage covenant, the male doesn't stop being a male, the female doesn't stop being a female but they are now one in the eyes of God. And so too with these other bigger entities, okay? two nations, the great nation and the small nation. They don't lose their identities. The great king is still the great king. The lesser one, the vassal is still who he is, that nation, but now their destinies are linked to such extent that if the great king then says to the vassal, the other lesser one, oh, I'm off to war tomorrow, and guess what? You are... Coming with me. Why? Because we are linked now. But also the lesser entity, the, the 
weaker one might say, oh, there's a group down the, down the, the valley who are hassling me. Uh, you have a responsibility, O great king, to come and help me. Okay, And that's what it means to be in covenant union with each other. There's also um, the component of formally swearing an oath. Okay, And when you swear an oath in ancient society, it was expected to be kept. And that's why Jesus said, don't swear. Don't swear an oath. Like your yes be yes and your no be no. Because everybody understood that if you swear an oath, you are in the name of God, you're bound to keep it. And so it was in ancient society. And those oaths will be sworn in front of witnesses. And when it comes to covenants that God's involved in, he is the witness and he will keep it. And there's a few examples where we can see that things happen four or 500 years after an event in which an oath was sworn in his name, and guess what? God actually keeps the people honest to their original word. So that's just a little bit, just a taster of what it means to have or to be entering into a covenant in ancient society. Folks, we have to understand this because when Jesus instituted the new covenant, he was alluding to these very same principles. The two shall become one. Now, at that particular point um, in the Passover meal, when Jesus had said those words, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, um, people would hopefully or probably have been remembering what's written in Jeremiah chapter 31. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus was alluding to the entirety of that chapter. Further on, he says in verse 33, Jeremiah wrote in verse 33, and Jesus would have been alluding to this all the way through. He said, this is the covenant that I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. He says, I will put my Torah, my law, in their minds and write it on their hearts. What is that really referring to? The God will put his Torah, his, his kingdom constitution, principles into our minds and into our hearts. He's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. Then he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. This is very, very important because in Hebraic thinking, the word to know, la, la dat, often refers to relationship. Now, in a Western thinking uh, uh, thought pattern, often the word to know something talks about knowledge. You've got to cram your head full of knowledge before the exam, and then afterwards you forget half it anyway. But in a Hebraic context, basically, to know is to have a relationship. To know somebody means to have a relationship. Okay? Give you an example. In Hebrew it says in Genesis 4.1, Adam yadachava, Adam knew Eve, and a child came out later. Uh, that's just an example. I won't go any more into it. So to know the Lord means to have a close, intimate relationship. That's the whole purpose of this new covenant. God wants to have a relationship. In actual fact, ever since the Garden of Eden, <coughs> excuse me, ever since the Garden of Eden, hasn't that been God's purpose? Hasn't that been God's desire? that there would be, again, a restored relationship with humankind? Yes, it has been. But in order for that to happen, that penalty of death has to be dealt with. And it wouldn't just be through a sacrifice of a lamb. It would actually have to be <coughs> a human being 
being willing to come and take that penalty upon himself. And of course, sin and iniquity would be forgiven. As Jeremiah um, states here in verse 34, for I'll forgive their iniquity and the sin I'll remember no more. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been on the road now for seven weeks and the voice is, is just on the way out. And that will, but that will happen. I think I better wrap up soon, otherwise the voice will will have disappeared. So God's desire is for a restored relationship. Jesus knew that. Jesus also knew full well that that could only happen if he died on on the cross to take that penalty of death. And that is exactly what happened. But before I get to that point, I just want to go back to one other aspect. And it says, They shall know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. God's desire, and this is a covenant that's been instituted with the nation of Israel. Now, God's desire has always been for all people to have a relationship with him. But he's cutting the covenant. God needed a group of people. He needed a nation. He needed a representative group that he could actually bring his redemptive plan through. It could have been the Australians, but it wasn't. It could have been the Americans, but it wasn't. It could have been the Saudi Arabians, but it wasn't. It was the people of Israel, and we have to accept that. That's whom God chose. And this covenant is being instituted with the nation of Israel. By God's grace, we who are far away have been grafted in. I used to say to groups that I used to speak to in Israel, I was a pig farmer. Anything on the farm I ever liked working with was the pigs. And then I was a bit of a scallywag before I came to know him. So if anybody was far away, it was me. But by his grace, I've been grafted in. But the new covenant is being instituted with the nation of Israel. But in the time of Jesus, only a remnant came to faith in Jesus as Messiah, accepted Jesus as the God incarnate Messiah. But it says here, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So it's a covenant that's being instituted, but is yet still to be fully consummated. Let's go back to Jesus on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he said a number of words And at the end of it, he says, it is finished. Now, Andrew knows his Greek very, very well. He went to Bible college and seminary, whatever else. He knows that the word, it is finished, is translated as tetelestai. And I've actually had to correct a few people over the years that said, Jesus on the cross, and he said tetelestai. And I said, since when was Jesus speaking Greek as his main language? Okay, Hebrew, in my opinion, was his main language, plus Aramaic and some Greek, perhaps, the word that is translated, tetelestai, or it is finished into Hebrew, is nishlam. And it's a wonderful word. It might have been the word he used, it might not have been. But the principle is incredibly important. The word nishlam is from the same root as the word shalom, peace. It's from the same root as the word Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, city of peace. Okay? That's shalom is actually in the word Jerusalem. The word nishlam basically means the price has been paid in full. And that's what Jesus was saying. The ransom price has been paid in full. A ransom price for what? What's he paying a ransom for? It's for you. It's for me. It's for you. And it's for you. It's for us. He's paying the ransom price that we can be set free. Jesus paid that price price in full. Nishlam. The price has been paid in full. And he died. <clears throat> 
But was he perfect? Did he completely obey God's Torah? What's the evidence that he, that he was perfect? He rose again from the dead. Because if Jesus had violated God's Torah or God's law in but one point, he would still be where? In the grave. He'd have to be 100% obedient to God's law in order to take the penalty. He rose again from the dead. And that is the good news. You do say hallelujah in this church, I hope. Okay. You can say hallelujah now if you like. Okay. That's the good news. Now, the second part of the equation, I'm going to finish up here while the voice is still functioning. The second part of the equation is this. How does it now affect you and I? Jesus has paid the price in full. But how do you, you and I now actually enter into this? What's the process? Let me just remind you of the words that Jesus spoke. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is where we need to understand the principles of covenant. The principles of covenant, the two shall become one. Who's paid the price? Jesus, who's redeemed us? Jesus. How do we actually benefit from what Jesus has done? Let me give you an example. When David was going to fight Goliath, they were representative men. Goliath represented the Philistines. David represented represented the Israelites. So whoever won, won for their army, won for their nation. Okay? And so the other, the defeated one would have to submit to to the victor. So it says that the Israelites were in fear. Even while David was going up, they were still in fear. They had no confidence that he would win the victory over Goliath. They were in fear. Little tiny Goliath, a representative man, one man defeated Goliath, the representative man of the Philistines. Okay, boom, down he goes like a ton of bricks. And David gets the victory. What it says then is that suddenly the Israelites arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. What gave the Israelites the right to go from being a bunch of cowards one minute to being a bunch of heroes the next minute? What did they do to win the victory? On a scale of zero to ten, what did they do? Zilch. Who who made the victory? Who won the victory? David won the victory. God's help, of course, yes, but he was the one. The representative man won the victory. And all the Israelites actually had the fruits of it. So it is with us and Jesus. And therefore, the principle of covenant kicks in. Jesus has done it all. We repent. We acknowledge that we were or are in Adam. We're saying we don't want to have any more allegiance to our status of being in Adam. We revoke that. And we transfer our allegiance from being in Adam to being in Christ, in covenant union with Jesus. That's what that really means when it says in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. There is none. Because we are now no longer Andrew. <clears throat> What's your name? Who's no longer Andrew or Sandra? You are now Andrew in covenant union with Jesus. You are now Sandra in covenant union with Jesus. Who's won the victory? Jesus. What's your status now? You're one with him in covenant union. So there's no condemnation. There's no legal condemnation upon you or you or me or any of us. That is who we are. That's the principle of covenant. 
being played out in the, what Jesus did for us on the cross in taking the penalty of death. And that is our new identity. That's the status that we now have. This came to the Jew first. God instituted the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And folks, there may be some of you out there who think, well, why them? They've made mistakes all the way through history and this and that. Okay, but every nation has done that. But the fact of the matter is God chose the people of Israel to be the nation and to be the people through whom he would bring his plan of redemption. And we have to face that and accept that. The plan of redemption came through the people of Israel. He instituted the new covenant and it says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. That is why CMJ was established in 1809 to continue to bring that message to the Jewish people. Jesus is the God incarnate Messiah. That's why they went out to the land of Israel in 1823 against all obstacles. That is why they're still functioning today. The message isn't just for the Jewish people, folks. It's for the Jew first and also for the non-Jew. We have to realize that as well. I'd like to conclude now by just asking several things. First of all, how was your attitude towards the people of Israel? Now, there are many people, even in the church, who do not accept the fact that God has chosen the people of Israel. I would like to remind each and every one of you, as a follower of Jesus, that you are in covenant union with a circumcised Jew. He didn't stop being Jewish. Okay? He's still Jewish. He's the Lion of Judah, which even the book of Revelation says. That's who he is. Secondly, I'd like to ask and challenge each and every one of us, have you changed your allegiance? Have you gone from being in Adam to being in covenant union with Jesus? If you haven't, may I thoroughly recommend that today, even this very day, you consider changing your allegiance, coming into covenant union with Jesus, King of kings and the Lord of lords. Folks, there is no greater example of love than what God has done in sending his son Jesus to take that penalty of death that's upon us. What greater sign of love can there be? And look what we gain. Forgiveness, restoration, relationship, gift of the Holy Spirit, and the gift of life eternal. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.